Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dear friends. We are so sorry about the ads. They are a nightmare in every way, but with your donations, we can get rid of ads someday. Beautiful, Kevin. Mm, thanks, Rob. Bach and Harnick are smiling <laughs> so big right out. now. <laughs> Friends, yes, we are back with a new plea. Much like those adorable puppets from Avenue Q, we are asking for you to give us your money. <laughs> for those of you who have headed over to Patreon to throw a little money our way, we thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Your contributions are the only budget we have for this show, and it provided us a new soundboard and better studio space, so a thank you. Thank you. And as you know, nothing is more fulfilling than talking to the legends of Broadway and hearing them share their thoughts, wisdom, and talents with all of us. However, it does cost money. And if you want to help us keep the show going, please head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search for Behind the Curtain, and you can give as little as a dollar a month. And trust me, that dollar will help us more than you will ever know. Plus, for certain monetary donations, you will get to pick your favorite thing and have advanced knowledge of our future guests so you can ask the legends your own questions. Or you can simply leave canned goods and an original cast recording of How Now Dow Jones outside our doors if you don't want to contribute on Patreon.com. Truth. So once again, please head over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com to help us out. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast Plus. You can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. In our industry, it is often said one of the most important positions is the one that is the most mysterious, mm-hmm. general manager. Sure, we see the name listed on playbills, press releases, and on contact sheets, but what exactly does this position do, and why is it essential in theatrical productions? Well, we are are very happy to report that one of Broadway's most respected and most beloved general managers has set out to answer that question in his wonderful new book, Broadway General Manager, Demystifying the Most Important and Least Understood Role in the Show Business. Ooh, in the show business. Ooh, I, I like that when you business. said that. Now, to tell us what the role requires and what it was like to work with such legends as Frank Langella, Alan Bates, Arthur Penn, Cicely Tyson, and countless others, here is General Manager and Author Peter Bodio. Peter, how are you today? I am just great. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, first of all, a huge thanks to one of our former guests, Susan Schultz who got us this interview in the first place, who's also in the room with us. We have two guests at the same Thanks, time. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Susan. She's <laughs> saying hi. Does that uh, mean two legends in the room? That's correct. Uh, wow. We are overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed. Almost. This is a first, pretty it's much. It's a first yeah. for us. It's yeah. a first. This is very exciting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she's, and she's overwhelmed. As she, as she we're, all, we're all overwhelmed. We're all overwhelmed. Uh, first of all, the book is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were Thank able to you. read a copy yep. of it, and it's really wonderful. Both of us work in the industry. There were things in there I had no idea mm-hmm. of that I was so surprised by. Let's start, though, with this question. What does a general manager do? That is a great question, and it actually took me an entire book to answer it. <laughs> but I'm going to try to answer it for you in just a few words today. Um, I like to say that in show business, I am the business half. So I'm really the top business, administrative, financial person on the show. I, I advise the producer on 
all matters financial. Initially, I, I budget the show so the producer knows how much money they have to raise. They, they don't know that till a general manager does a very detailed budget. Uh, I prepare an operating budget for the producer so they know once the show begins performances how much it's going to cost to run on a weekly basis. I negotiate almost all the contracts according to those budgets that the producer and I agree upon. Um, anytime anything has a cost implication or needs to be quantified, the producer looks to me to provide that information. And so financial overview is, is the single largest and broadest component of my job. Where do you get these numbers from? Is there Are there standards in the industry, and that's where you're pulling the template from? Well, there are a variety of different ways. Um, as you probably know, every single thing in the theater is unionized, every position. So if you expect to pay any person in any position minimum, then you just go to that union's rule book and look yeah. up what the current minimum is. But of course, a star actor or a very well-established director or a multiple award-winning designer isn't going to work for minimum. Right. Yeah. Right. So there you really have to call on your own expertise and experience of what uh, a going rate is for that position for a top person in that field. Also, very often you wind up calling a colleague and saying, mm -hmm. hi, I'm doing a show with blank. I know they worked for you recently. Would you mind sharing with me, and of course I'll keep this in the strictest of privacy, what right. their last quote was. Mm -hmm. Because it, it's very important when you're budgeting or negotiating a contract that you do your research. So you need to find out what other people of comparable status are getting or what this person has gotten recently. So let's say, for example, um, I come to you and I say, I'm producing uh, this play and Steve Carell, uh, we want him for it. You're the one who comes back with a number and says, this is the number you should be offering Steve Carell. Right, right. I mean, I would do my research. I rarely just make up a number off the top yeah, of my head. Yeah, yeah. I would say, let me investigate. Let me, I, I could talk to casting agents to say, you know, who do you think is a, con Steve Carell has never been on Broadway to my knowledge. So right. no. I could say to someone, whom do you think is a, is a comparable star at that level? Um, and then I could try to research what that person got. Hmm. The thing to remember is that that certainly for actors, I mean, they're represented by an agent who, if they're a top actor, is, is probably a fairly large agency, be it ICM or William Morris Endeavor or CAA. So the, the agent in that agency is going to have access to all the other agents working on his or her side oh. who can say, well, my client got this, or, right. you know, I yeah. just got bet this, or I just got yeah. Hugh Jackman that. So they're also going to have access. So it's very important to do your research so you don't open a negotiation with an offer that is insultingly low mm -hmm. or uninformed mm -hmm. low, that, that bears no relation to what other people of a comparable status are. Are getting and you're doing this for everyone: actors, directors, designers, playwrights. Correct. That, well, actually, the only person that traditionally I don't negotiate the contract for is the playwright. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, that contract is almost always done by the production attorney, huh. and that's the very first contract that has to be put in place because until the producer has the rights to produce the play, right. they can't approach anyone. They can't make any claims. Right. So. I often say I'm usually the second person hired. The production attorney is usually first. I'm second, unless it's, let's say, an inexperienced producer, and they find their way to me first, and I say, well, do you have the rights yet? And they say, well, no, and I'll say, well, do you have... One, one of the main things I also do is I'm a referral service, so I can <laughs> say, do you, do, are you working with a seasoned theatrical attorney? If not, I'd be happy to recommend three or four that I have total confidence in. Why don't you meet them? Why don't you see if you feel comfortable with any? If for whatever reason you don't, come back to me. I'll give you another three or four. And I may do that with a production attorney, a casting agent, uh, really any position that the producer is not familiar with, I can certainly recommend people for them to meet and consider. 
That's amazing. Yeah. So it's a, a Rolodex in your mind, a constantly increasing Rolodex of names and exactly. reputations. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that job. That's <laughs> I'm exhausted just well, listening you, about you it. You have your like hand that. in so many places. Not only that, but you have to, like we were talking about, if you had a star vehicle, let's say there's only a limited run of 16 weeks, you'd have to know how much money can we pay that person and still make a profit for the producers in the end, on a top of it all, because you can't just give away lots of money. A absolutely. So... I initially prepare two sets of budgets for the producer, a production budget, which basically tells them how much money they have to raise and to get until the first paid public performance. At the point where you begin performances and you're selling tickets and you're getting revenue, you are operating. So I also prepare a weekly operating budget, how much it's going to cost to run the show on a right. weekly basis. But at the end of that budget, and this is very important for producers, I do a series of recoupment scenarios, telling them based on a certain gross, which is a certain percentage of the maximum possible gross, how quickly they could recoup right. production expenses. Right. So I usually... You have those in the book. You, you yeah. Use, you I have those in the book. I share yeah. them. I, I think one of the things that makes my book unique is that I really share a lot of in-depth and detailed information that has never been shared with the public before. And then I... I go through my budgets line by line. I go through my contracts paragraph by paragraph. I give notes. I explain. So my hope is, as per the subtitle of the book, demystifying the most important and least understood role in show business, that people will be demystified. I by think it's a end. great word for yeah. that too. Demystify because it, it it is at the end pretty. I mean, not simple math, but it's math. I mean, really, it's budgeting. But when you add show business to it, and you add the designers and percentages, there is something mystifying to it. And yet, you do this for every single show. It is a. It's like breathing for you at this point. Oh, absolutely, I, I joke when when people ask me why did you write the book. I sometimes glibly respond, well, I largely did it out of self-defense <laughs> because I have friends who have known me for decades and they still can't quite grasp like, what, do you do? what I do. And a lot of it has to do with the title. The title gives nothing away. General yeah. manager. manager. Like just, just managing in general. I like. mean, if you say I'm a playwright, people can figure out what you do. True. But I see people's faces glaze over when I say, I'm a general manager. And you know they're thinking, what the heck? Right. does that mean? Right. Um, you so know, I'm hoping the book will clarify yeah. that. Oh, and the book absolutely does. And one of the things that I'd like to reiterate, because we both read the book, is it's not just applicable to those of us that are working in the New York Broadway commercial theater Indeed. scene. You can use it in regional theater. You can use it in, in an educational environment. Um, it provides a wonderful template of what artists should be compensated, but also what's expected of the artists and the producers themselves. So, I mean, this book is for everyone. And, and, and it d clearly defines the roles of each of the, the artists and groups that involve putting on a show. I mean, you literally have a glossary, but you literally define, like, this is what the set designer does. This is when this person comes on. It's I, I found it very... I learned many things that and I like didn't know. We, yeah, we Thank both you. work in the yeah. industry, and we were still going, yeah. I didn't know that. But tell me a couple of things you didn't know. I'm really tickled pink. What? what <laughs> oh, well, well, first of all, because I'm a director prior Primarily, um, I was not aware of the amount of money a director can receive as a production continues on. I did not know that. So I think what I'm going to do is, is anytime I go into a contract negotiation, I'm just going to slap the book <laughs> on the table and go, you look at Peter's chapter, and then we'll go from there. Um, the uh, Also, the numbers that were given out um, also surprised me, especially for designers, because I assumed that designers might be getting paid more than the actual number that was in the book. Well, uh, and that could be my own naivete, but it, it varies. First of all, I decided it would be more interesting to give as an example a, co a contract for people who were stars in their area. So a star yeah. actor, a top director, a top designer, because their contracts would be that much more involved than someone who gets minimum as per the union agreement. Uh, so the writers, the yes. writers, which really are for all practical purposes, the contract. The writers are attached to the union contract face, which says all the rules and conditions right. in Standard. the rule book yeah. stand, mm -hmm. but those are minimums. Right. As you become more successful and you've won more awards, then obviously you can ask for more minimums. So your salary, your publicity demands, your personnel demands for a yes. dress or whatever, all of those increase. So I just thought, well, why don't I give 
the most complicated example, and then yeah. So um, explain it all. <laughs> you you keep that in mind when you bring my book in to show your agent. Um. <laughs> Let me ask you, uh, if if you don't mind answering this question, what do you think is the most frustrating union ruler regulation that you always have to come up against? That is a toughie. There are a lot of union rules, and I have a lot of respect for many of the union rules, which were created in reaction to abuses by Indeed. irresponsible yes. producers. Right. Yes. It, really, any union rule that doesn't seem to make sense to me or that I, or that one feels is feather bedding. Mm -hmm. And over the years, the Broadway League in its contract negotiations with the various unions has done a wonderful job of getting rid of almost all those old feather bedding rules. So for example, years ago, and this has not been the case now for years, but years ago, different Broadway theaters came with a set number of musicians whether or not the show needed them or was even a musical. Right. If you booked this theater, you had to pay for, let's say, 12 musicians. Right. The house uh, musicians. They the were, house yeah. musicians, yeah. irrespective of whether the show needed that many musicians right. or, or might have been a play right. that didn't need any. There's a, a famous story of David Merrick once being so annoyed that he had to comply with this rule that he made the musicians sit in the boiler room in the basement and play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star nonstop <laughs> during the course of the show eight times a week. I believe it. I like, believe it. Knowing David Merrick, or not knowing or hearing of David Merrick, I believe that, definitely. Like. So, so to, but to go back to your question, I, I don't know if I personally have a single rule that frustrates me. I, I can tell you, if you don't mind me sort of altering the question, Please. one of the most frustrating aspects of my job is that although I am paid and constantly consulted for my advice, the producer is under no obligation to take my advice. Mm. And that can be frustrating because my whole, any general manager's orientation and training is to serve the show, protect the producer, have the producers back. Mm -hmm. um, I will frequently say things to prospective clients that aren't necessarily in my personal interest, but I feel they're in the interest of the show. Like, let's say an author comes to me and they want me to be involved in some early stage presentation of their work that they hope will attract a producer. And I'll, I'll say, well, yeah, I'll be happy to work with you at this stage, but you should not give me right of first refusal for anything going forward, because in all likelihood you won't be the producer, and it's very important that the producer chooses the general manager they know and are familiar mm -hmm. with, and you and no one should have to buy me out. So uh, I don't know whether everyone would take that position, but wow, um, yeah. I just feel yeah. that's part of my that's job. Honorable. Yeah. yeah, It's very honorable. Um, the other general managers that are in the industry, is it a pretty collegial industry? Are you all friendly with each other? You can. Are there many of you? Yeah, are there, how, yeah, are there many of you? Um, it's a very small pool. Someone asked me that recently, and yeah. I thought... I don't know, maybe there are 20 different offices. Now, some of those offices may have a few general managers in them. Mm. Um, but it's, relatively speaking, very small, and it's such an important position, and the general manager and the producer develop such a tight relationship that usually if they have worked together on a show and it goes well, the producer will almost always return to that general manager uh -huh. because you have to have total trust. You have to be able to confide anything. You're really in the trenches together. Um, at one point in my book, I, I describe how complex this relationship is, and I think I say that the general manager is a confidant and advisor uh, a father confessor, a conciliere, <laughs> the bad cop to the producer's good cop, you know, a friend. It's a very complex relationship that occasionally can become codependent. I mean, you speak many, many times a day. The producer needs to feel he can call or reach the general manager any hour of the day or night, weekends, holidays, anything happens. I'm 
usually the first person to get the call. So chapter one of your book is called How Does One Become a General Manager? So let me ask you, how did you become a general manager? Uh, I had an experience where I, I produced an original play as a little showcase so that I could act in it. Ah, um, very smart. I figured, what's the best way to make sure the show happens and I get to play the role? <laughs> I produced it. Uh, I, I think I was quite successful. What was the play called? The play was called Trespasses. Okay. Um, but to my complete surprise, at the end of the experience, when the dust settled, I had to admit that I thought I was better suited for this producing side of theater than for the acting side. Huh. So I talked to people and did my research, and I, I realized that the two things I knew every producer had to do, namely choose the piece and raise the money, weren't things that I felt anyone could teach me. Mm. I thought choosing the piece is taste, raising the money is salesmanship. But as I talked to people, almost everything else that a producer did seemed to be done in very close collaboration with this mysterious, if not mystifying, person called the general manager. Huh. So I decided I would go to work for a general manager uh, to kind of learn what they did and hopefully to help me become a much more uh, knowledgeable, hands-on producer. And so I explain in the book there's, there's, um, th there's a, a, pr a standard process. You wouldn't have to follow this process, but it's the most common and conventional. Um, general managers employ a very key union position called a company manager who is kind of their lieutenant and who comes on when the general manager has set up everything and then the company manager executes it. That's, that's very simplistic. I go into much greater yes. detail in my book. But I, I uh, heard that a certain general manager's office, uh, Albert Poland, who was a, a true legendary general manager, huh. um, was looking to hire a new assistant, and I interviewed, and it seemed to go well, and they said, call back in a week, and I did, and his one assistant picked up and sounded very harried and said that Albert couldn't come to the phone, it was too busy, could I call back? I said, sure. And then I remembered something I had read that the late, great Catherine Hepburn once said, which is, never write or call when you can go in person. So True. I thought, okay, I got up, I walked over to this office, I kind of loomed in the doorway. Yeah. Albert looked up from like several ringing phones, saw me, said, oh, thank God, when can you start? I said, now. Walked in, sat down, answered a ringing phone. I, mean, oh, I wow. know I read that, but like, yeah. that sounds like a movie. I yeah. mean, that can't, I mean, it was like, oh, good, oh, great kid, you're here, sit down, <laughs> I'm gonna hire you, you're, you're hired. I mean, it really, what? I swear, it happened that way. And so did you have, other than, you know, you, you would wanted to maybe perhaps pursue a career in acting and then you realized perhaps not. Did you tr go anywhere to train? Did you do anything mm. other than show up at his office? That was step one. Was uh, that was step one. No, I, I learned on the job. Yeah, that's I, what I'm, I, I mean. I learned by listening, asking yeah. questions. Eventually, I was mentored by uh, a wonderful company manager, several wonderful company managers, Marion Finkler uh -huh. and, and uh, Nancy Noggle-Gibbs. Uh, oh, yeah. Then I began to trail them. I, I trailed Nancy at the original Little Shop of Horrors down in the village, which was no, great. Oh, wow. Uh, and then I realized at a certain point that to move forward, I it would behoove me to try to become an AtPAM company manager. Now, say that, that acronym. That acronym, AtPAM, mm -hmm. uh, stands for the Association of Theatrical Press Agents and Managers. When and I first learned about this union, because uh, I, I did Les Mis years ago, and I was always friends with the company managers. And they, they would, of course, was why not? And they would tell me this test that they had to take in order to yeah. become. I, they were like, oh, yeah, it's like once every year, every two years, there's six people in the room. It is so hard, this test. You study, study, study. Am I wrong here? I mean, th this is what it, they it, told it is, me. It, it is, is an elite group of people seems to me, that become a member of this Well, I, I think union. the union, and I don't, I, I think rightfully so, the union wants to make sure that people they admit are qualified. Yeah. I mean, a company manager has to know and understand a lot and make sure that union rules are followed so that the show isn't fined. So yeah. it could cost the show money if they're 
not knowledgeable. Right. So there is a very stringent exam, both oral and written. And God. I mean, I took that exam, I think it was 91. Were you stressed out? Do you remember? It was very stressful, but, but people who were all going to be taking it at the same date sort of found each other and right. formed study groups months ahead. See? Oh, wow. We it's met like once exam. a week. I mean, it's like... It, it's it, like the bar exam. Because you have to pass this. Because you probably already have a gig that you know, like, if you don't pass this oh, test, yeah. you're screwed, man. Yeah. Like, exactly. Some, sometimes they will allow you to take a contract pending passing the exam the very next time it's offered. So, so you form very tight bonds with um, the other people in your study group. One of them was, was my friend and colleague... Tom Santo Pietro, who interviewed me at Barnes and Noble for my book signing, oh, uh, days ago. Yeah. Uh, another one is is a woman that I still keep in touch with, and I st- we still remember what we had for lunch <laughs> that day, in between the written and the oral part, because it was such oh, so kind of heightened can, yeah. reality. Oh, yeah. can, can you imagine if our unions gave us a test? To do anything? Yeah, right. Actors' equity? <laughs> How many times can you go to Schmackeries? <laughs> exactly. In There's one free week. food. How yeah. much will you take? Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so do you have to take this test every year, every other year, or do you just take it once and you're, you're golden? Well, my path was a little unusual, and the rules have changed since then yeah. because it was that long ago. But uh, I worked in Albert's office, and Albert primarily, although certainly not exclusively, did Off-Broadway. He mm. was oh. he was um, known as an expert in Off-Broadway. So I actually did an Off-Broadway apprenticeship because I was able to get weeks on Little Shop of Horrors, which had a very, very long run. And and on other Off-Broadway shows he did. You have a certain... You have to yeah. work a certain number of Thank weeks you. within a certain amount of time. Right, to, to accrue your apprenticeship. Exactly, and then you're eligible to take the exam. Exactly. And I was able to do this because his office was so active and and sought after. So I passed the off-Broadway exam, and then that made me a New York local area member only of ATPAM, not a national member. But at that time, they had a rule that a year later, I would be allowed to take the overall entrance exam. And if I passed that... I would be an overall member. So I was sort of like half a member, yeah. but without ever having worked on a Broadway show. Uh-huh. Um, so I really studied like mad oh my gosh. Um, and was fortunate enough a year later to pass that exam so then I could work in any jurisdiction I right. chose. That's incredible. Yeah. That's just, it's just, it's the tra- so I don't think people you, realize that trajectory in yeah. order to become a company manager or a state or a, a general manager, that, that it's, it, it is quite a stringent process. It's a very stringent process. And I, and I do believe rightfully so that, that you are expected to know a great deal of important things that could have serious ramifications if you're ignorant. So mm-hmm. the union really, and the, the union also offers seminars to its apprentices mm-hmm. during that time so they specifically bring in experts on insurance or traveling stagehands or all, right. all sorts of areas cool. yeah. um, you, you said that one of the first projects you got started on was Little Shop of Horrors back in the early 80s um, how has the role of a general manager changed since when you first entered the business to now that's a great question um I don't think the role has changed significantly. Mm-hmm. We're still involved in the same areas. I think I think certain areas have changed. So advertising has changed a lot uh, as digital has become more and more important. Mm. Yeah. Print, print ads like a big display ad in the New York Times right. are much less frequent. But But advertising through the Internet with banner ads, with having a Facebook page, mm. with contents. Um, social media. Social media, social, social media. Social oh media in general. But of course, you have to weigh that. Every show is unique. Every show's ideal demographic audience is unique. So if you're doing a revival of The Gin Game... Mm which probably appeals to an older audience. It's about older characters in a assisted living residence. 
I'm not sure whether a huge digital campaign would reach your target audience. If you're doing Hamilton, right? Bingo. You know, right. I don't think you've got to take full page ads in the New York Times for a hundred thousand dollars. No, you're right. And are those comments and observations that you make to a producer at the beginning of this process? Are you involved in those discussions as well? I'm involved in those discussions, but remember, there are a lot of other top people involved in the process. So there will be an advertising agency, and certainly their recommendations will be uh, looked at very carefully. They won't necessarily be accepted blanketly, but the advertising agency will have a lot to say about how they think you should spend your money. Then the general manager and the producer review it. The general manager reviews the numbers and it's discussed, this is great, we actually don't want to do this, but we'd like to do this. Uh, We don't want to to take a big ad in the New York Times, but what about a direct mail piece? So it it is a dialogue. Mm. One of the things that makes my job so interesting is that I get to interact with pretty much every single facet of a production. So, for example, on a given day, I could easily speak to certainly my producer, if not 20 times, investors, the production attorney, the press agent, the advertising agency, the casting director, actors agents, our insurance broker, our banker, the theater owner, a travel agent, the company manager who works in my office with me. I mean, we're talk all day long, Uh, a payroll service, the stage manager, the accountant. Uh, That's the perhaps one of the most fun part of my jobs. You enjoy this. I enjoy being, as as I think it's called in the book, the linchpin of the production through which every aspect passes, needs to be coordinated, needs to be communicated with. Uh, I need to keep track of their expenses um, yeah, that's fun to have this broad, broad overview. Well, it seems to me that there is an element that is very cerebral, the numbers part of it, the part that's analytical. But then you also have to have these great social skills as yeah. well. You have to be able to adapt to the, all the different personalities on that list because God knows your author is going to be one personality. Producer is certainly another personality. And then the actor's agents, there's a whole other ball of, you know. And you have, not to mention the negotiating you do. I mean, it blows my mind that you have to deal, you have to weigh all of that. That. You have to wait. You have to wait <laughs> all of that. And be good at it. Um, and be good at it. <laughs> it my, my, my wife says that I'm very good at not taking things personally. I, yeah. can, I can let things roll off. I me. imagine that is a good special skill to have as I, a general I think manager. it's helpful. I know uh, I also produce special events, which mm-hmm. I don't discuss in the book. Mm-hmm. That's a sideline. But uh, I once did a major benefit concert, which was my idea at Carnegie Hall of the legendary Stephen Sondheim, Arthur Lawrence musical, Anyone Can Whistle. Uh, was my idea to do it as a benefit concert because it's a great, fascinating score. It's a flawed book. It's perfect as a concert. And I'm sure our listeners, or I hope our listeners, are familiar with this recording because it's... Have you not heard it? Well, are we talking the one from 1995? Five? Four? With Madeline Kahn. Yes! Yeah, I produced that Peter, event. I love that concert. I didn't want to get overexcited because I didn't know that was the one we were talking about. That's the recording. That was amazing. That's the one I only listened to. Lance Mary only, yes. she always said it's, it's okay. so good. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So where did this idea it. come from to do Anyone Can Whistle? Um, oh. I was in my home reading a book on Sondheim whom I had worked with after college. I had a chance to meet him in college. I was in the original the Frogs. Oh, this is at Yale. This is at Yale. Uh-huh. Uh, I was in the original 
Yale Repertory Theater okay. production of Why, the Frogs. We should have had that in the introduction. Why we didn't have that in our <laughs> intro. I apologize for that because a, that a, is a former frog. A former original frog. frog. Thank you. But but I want to I want to get back towards your question because sure. we, could, we could drift That's a, aside. We're drifters. Hey, no, no, no. We, we this drift is, a lot. This is good. We t- like this. Talking too. about being able to get along with a wide range of people. So both Arthur Lawrence and Steve Sondheim were certainly involved in this concert. I, I went to them to ask for the rights. Right. And um, mm-hmm. sort of at the end of the process, I thought seriously of having a t-shirt, t-shirt made up that said, Arthur Lawrence hugged me. Oh, my God. Because he could be difficult. And, and there was one yes, day where... He was known. <laughs> he was known. I think he probably was proud of mm-hmm. his well-earned reputation. And there was a day where he was difficult. And I remember I, I had to write Steve a note at the end of the day reporting on something, and I, I couldn't help myself. I said, when you wrote the line, art isn't easy, <laughs> were you thinking of anyone in particular? <laughs> but he had a funny response to that too yeah and the benefit it was a benefit to benefit which organization gay men's health crisis yeah yeah and um once again go over your cast for us for this amazing event uh thank you well first of all we were able to um entice angela lansbury to come back and be a special hostess she was still filming murder she wrote at that time but because oh. this was the first musical she had ever appeared in, right. and it kind of launched her musical theater career and yeah. eventually paved the way for Mrs. Lovett, right. um, she felt a great debt of gratitude mm. towards the show. And she said, you know, I'm filming Monday through Friday, do it over a weekend, and I'm there. So our Arthur wrote a special concert treatment of the show and created special dialogue for her as a as a guest hostess which was great i think she walked out and after the thunderous applause and carnegie said something like uh many years ago i myself was the mayoress of such a town yes you know carnegie went insane yeah. um so she was a she was sort of an add-on she wasn't yeah. playing her role yeah this was 31 so, so like years later. Sort of the narrator, later. I want to say. Yeah. She was she a, a narrator. the events. So but then the cast was Madeline Kahn, who was my idea. Scott Great idea. Bakula, yeah. who was my idea. And Stephen Arthur came up with the wonderful idea of asking Bernadette Peters to be the nurse. Um, it's uh, incredible. And the, I also have to commend you on recording it wholly. I mean, yes. like you get a full sense of the show, whereas the original cast recording is, it's you get the songs, but you don't get a lot of the dialogue, you don't get some of the scene work, you don't get a full context of what this show is. So right. I thank you for that, you know, because it preserves thank that Columbia. show. Well, yeah, thank they, you, Columbia. True, but it was uh, I'm uh, I'm so thankful for that recording. And oh, that, I'm tickled yeah. pink that yeah. you know it and love oh. it. That was, oh, yeah. That was definitely was a very one important of, part of childhood. <laughs> that was one of the highlights of of my entire career, having that idea, being able to go directly to Steve Sondheim because mm-hmm. I'd worked for him and I could just call him at home. Yeah. Then he said, let's meet with Arthur. So we met at Arthur's home. Uh, and I could tell that that show meant an awful lot to them. It was very experimental. It didn't work. What was good was great. What didn't work really pulled it down. Yeah. But this was an opportunity to kind of redeem the reputation of that piece. Right. Uh, and we had two of the original chorus cast members oh, wow. who came back 31 years oh, wow. later, which was great. That is That's great. really exciting. Let's jump but back to the book. Yeah. Oh, back oh, no, to the no, book. No, hey, are you kidding me? That's oh. part of your career, too. I love it. Now, I'm so sorry. Before we jump back to the book, I'm going to hijack this for a second. Do it. What was it like being a frog? It was... Great fun. I mean, I was in a room with Stephen Sondheim, and I was an undergraduate at Yale. This was done at the end of the school year. Uh It was a special benefit for the Yale rep. And so they were able to take in people outside of the drama school for the chorus. So I met some lovely drama school students who were singing frogs with me. There was a very nice blonde woman named Meryl Streep. There was a very striking-looking tall brunette named Sigourney Weaver. Right. There was a promising playwright named Christopher Durang. <laughs> and 
I have a photo in my my infamous scrapbooks of us standing around the side of the swimming pool in our little togas. Oh um, my gosh! So yeah, and I have to tell you, as an unknown student actress at the drama school, it was unmistakable that Meryl Streep was going to be a big, big star. Really, I saw all her work as a student. Yeah, and. I was in awe. Everyone just knew it was. Everyone knew wow. she was like a blazing comet. Yeah, yeah. In her talent, her originality, her humor. That's um, special. So amazing. I mean, yeah. she was just an unknown graduate student, but wow. like everybody knew who Meryl Streep was. Wow. You know? What happened to her? <laughs> I had to make the joke. Did. It's such an obvious joke, but I had yeah. to make it. Now you said you worked a lot in Albert's office for how many years were you there? I'm trying to think. I think I'm in the Guinness World Book of Records. <laughs> um, uh, Albert also uh, could be perceived as someone with a uh, tricky personality. Mm. But what does that uh, mean? Yes. What does that? What does that mean? Like Arthur Lawrence, tricky, or like <laughs> no? Just look. A lot of people in the business are temperamental. Uh-huh. They're emotional. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a business that attracts people with egos. Um, Albert and I got along extremely well. He was good to me. He kept promoting me. I started as the second assistant. I became the first assistant. I became the office manager. Mm. I became an apprentice company manager. I became his sort of go-to company manager. I became an associate. Was Starmites? Were you uh, working with him on that? Uh, yes, Starmites was a show that Albert General managed. This is the first time we've talked about Starmites on our podcast. I, I know, and, 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 and our listeners very, love I'm it. I'm actually very excited about that. Well, it's way overdue, guys. You, right? Right. The yeah. Space Age musical. Come yeah, on. it's about time. We're the Starmites. Do do do. Yes. He's got it. He's got it. I was an associate producer. Yeah, you were. So what is that? So whenever I see that, that's like when you see a businessman as a consultant. You're like, what? What does that even mean? What is? What is? What is? An associate producer raises a chunk of money, Ah. and it's enough that they give that person a title. But I'm not a full producer. I didn't raise fifty percent or a third. But you were still working for the general manager. Yeah. So associate producer can raise money and still be under the umbrella of a general manager. Does that make sense? You yeah. Know what I'm I mean, like, I think I discussed it with Albert. I, I, I went to see the show. It had an out-of-town yeah. uh, tryout in New Hampshire, and all the Boston papers came and gave it great review. Can you tell us a great quick reviews. rundown if you remember the plot? Do you remember the, what the story is? Do you remember yeah. what it's about? Uh, the story is about a young adolescent girl, Eleanor, who uh, loves comic books and the world of fantasy mm-hmm. and at the beginning of the show her mother is concerned that she is perhaps rather like today's uh, young people who just game on the computer mm-hmm. that she's spending too much time shut up in her room and she's becoming a little weird and she doesn't have friends and she's living in this fantasy world so her mother takes away her comic books and is going to throw them away and and somehow and I, I don't remember the specifics um, kind of like Dorothy in Kansas, Eleanor is transported into the world of her favorite yes. comic book. So she's like a visitor from the present who suddenly finds herself in this comic book world right. with the Starmites, and she has to battle. There's a quest. She has to battle the evil, the evil. Oh right, queen. That queen. Yes. yeah. She's. Like <laughs> Uh, I haven't listened to the album in so long. But. And Eleanor was Liz Larson. Liz right? Larson, the fabulous Liz Larson. And the diva was Sharon McKnight. McKnight. Oh, Sharon McKnight. Man. Doing and, the uh, pony yes. during her big production Are number. Are you kidding me? We will post a clip because oh, they did it on the yes. Tonys. It's hard yes. to be diva, baby. <laughs> it's a great song, which is, a, is a fantastic song. song. She comes out of a sort of pod. Sort yes. of an Egyptian pod and does the song and then sort of dances the pony while she's doing it. It's great. It's really a great musical. It, I think it's so much fun. Well, and you're recorded, right, it's due for a revival. They recorded yeah. a, a cast album or a, a studio album mm. of it some years after. And I, mm-hmm. I, I with believe, the original cast. With the original cast, yeah. Gabriel mm. Barry, who's now a director. Yeah. Oh, G- so Gabe cool. was great. Gabe was yeah. nominated for a Tony. Yeah, as, nominated as for a Tony, yeah. The Lizard. He was yeah. amazing. <laughs> um, you said, as an associate producer, you raised a chunk of money. If you don't mind my asking, was it your own money, or did you have to go and seek backers? No, I sought backers. How do you approach a backer? How, do you, how does that process work? Well, uh, I find 
the best approach is to say to someone, hi, I have a business opportunity for you. Uh, are you interested in letting me tell you more about it? It's very high risk because it's theater. There's no guarantee you'll get your money back. Mm -hmm. But I believe strongly in this property. I think it's a great show. I think it'll find an audience. I can get you a script. I can let you hear the music. I can let you see some financial documents that will give you recoupment scenarios under different situations. And, um, you know, if the show works, there certainly is a chance, but no guarantee, that you'll get your money back and possibly make profit. So it is a business opportunity, mm -hmm. albeit very high risk. It's not charity. It's not a gift. Um, I think I think the show is great, and this is what Boston critics thought in the case mm -hmm. of Starmites. I could show them wonderful reviews from leading Boston newspapers, mm -hmm. you know, and then... It, it, in any theatrical financing, you are required by law to state over and over what a terrible idea it is <laughs> to invest in a show. Are you absolutely right. sure? Uh, you know, have you had a psychiatric examination <laughs> recently? Do you know what percentage of shows fail and never return? I mean, th the documents are as discouraging as they possibly can be and then sort of give a sense at the end. All right. Well, if, if you're you absolutely really determined must. to do it, then we can't stop you. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. That's so that's incredible. Wild. You say different recoupment scenarios. What are these scenarios that you present if the show were to win the Tony Award or if we were to run? Well, they're, they're, they're based on the budget. So you, you, I do my operating budget, which gives me a base figure of what our fixed expenses are, those expenses that are set that I expect to be the same every single week, like someone's salary, if it's the mm -hmm. same every week, and what we've what I've negotiated for the lighting package mm -hmm. rental. So those are the fixed expenses. And then at the end of that budget, I do a price scale based on the theater and different sections and what I think are sort of going rates of the orchestra at this price, the mezzanine at this price, whatever. And from that, I can calculate an average ticket price. And then the budget is based on a specific theater, hopefully, which we already have. But if we don't, then it says it's based on a theater of so many seats. Mm -hmm. So I then can figure out at 100% of capacity what our gross would be. We would have as many seats in the theater times the average ticket price times eight shows a week. And that would give us a capacity gross. It doesn't include... Uh, premium seats, which you can't count on, but just right. your your regular full price tickets. So at a hundred percent, you've sold every seat. There are no discounts. There are no comps. It's sort of this ideal number. And then based on that number, I can say, okay, at this gross, our fixed expenses are so much. Certain expenses are variable. Let's say they're a percentage of the gross. Mm. So as the gross changes, that number will change. Fluctuates, yeah. Like royalties, mm -hmm. yes. let's say. So I know, let's say our royalty package is 10%. So at 100% of capacity, I can say in this scenario, 10% of that gross would be this much. And then I take away all the expenses, and you're left with profit. And then I take the profit figure, and I say, OK, if this is the maximum profit, and these are our production expenses. If you divide the total of production expenses by the total amount of profit in that scenario, it tells you how many weeks right. it would take of that weekly profit to achieve that number to pay back the production costs. And then you would be making a profit yeah. after that once you pay off those production costs. Yes, correct? exactly, exactly. Yeah. Your investors, but your, your investors want to know, well, under what circumstances, how quickly could I get my money exactly. back? So that's 100%. Then I take that and I project, okay, at 90% of that capacity figure, the gross will be a little less, the fixed expenses will be the same, the variable expenses will be a little less because it's a lower number, and it'll take slightly more weeks to recoup. At 80%, the gross will be less, it'll take that many more weeks to recoup. And what I usually try to do when I budget is, um, well, you always want to try to calculate 
what is your break even? What gross do you need to make to cover all your the expenses? The nut, if you will. Is the it? nut. Yes. Exactly. So whenever you're in a show, you're always like, I wonder what the nut is of our show. Yeah. Because you, you, And friends, you can do this. Every week on Playbill and all the theater publications, you can look at the gross numbers. And we, you know, we still yeah. look at them. And, and the, the key line items, though, that you really want to look at are the average ticket price and capacity. Yeah. Because it, you could be at 100%, but if you're selling your ticket for you know half of the price, you're not... I imagine that's a constant battle is like how much do we discount versus how many butts do we want in the seats, you know, because I, I tell a funny a dance. St- I tell a funny story about average ticket price. Yeah. Um, but let me make sure I oh, sorry. finish yes, the, the other question. Uh, so these recoupment scenarios show you at varying percentages of capacity gross, which is 100 percent, this ideal world where you've sold every ticket, every performance no discounts, no comps, every single ticket at its price, what you could make, and how how many weeks it would take to recoup the investment, well, the production costs. Mm -hmm. And then you take it back. And I I like to look at the 70% of capacity scenario because I feel that is a conservative, realistic number. And if if the show works financially at 70%, I feel that's a very good sign. And of course, mm. the better than 70% it does, it's only going to recoup faster. If it right. does 80%, it'll recoup faster. If 90%, that much faster. At 100%, really fast. But I, I, to me, 70% is sort of a reality check. And then I look at the number of weeks it takes to recoup, and then I can use that number of weeks to say, well, how many weeks are we negotiating for our star? Because if it takes 16 weeks at 70%, but we only have a star for 12 weeks, that puts a lot right. of pressure on yeah. us to do gangbang business right. or our star will have left and we won't have recouped production expenses, which, if you remember from the book, yeah. are not quite the same as the full capitalization. They're a slightly lower figure. Right. So there's still a sum of money that has not been paid back to the investors right. when you've paid back your production costs. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. But for you, it's this is like breathing at this point. You can you can figure out these numbers, right? Bread and butter. Bread and <laughs> butter. Is there a project that has surprised you, either in a positive way or a negative way, going into it thinking, this is a hit, it's a walk in the park, and it didn't turn out that way, or one that you said, boy, this is going to be a really uphill climb, and it turned out to be quite easy for you? Wow. That's a great question. Um, I don't want to get too much into this because this is probably going to be my next book, uh-huh. but <laughs> it's a little preview. A little preview. A little preview. I was slated to be an above the title producer on the now legendary musical of Rebecca. Oh, oh. I was in that. Oh, my goodness. Yes. For the whole... I mean, we can either cut this out or whatever, but I was part of all of that. I knew your name was familiar to me. Well, I was in the show from the very beginning. I traveled to Vienna to see it in German, and certainly that show had more surprises in it than one could ever imagine, and that is going to be my next book. I have the rights from all the creatives to, to tell the story. I'm thinking of calling it... Who Killed Rebecca, the true story of the greatest scandal in the history of Broadway. It's br- marvelous. And you saw the CNBC, did you see that whole special about it and everything? I mean, yeah. like, yeah. It's oh, unbelievable. You know so certainly that, that show had lots of surprises. Okay, so we'll just have to wait for the second book to come oh, out. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That, okay. That's really good. Wow. Awesome. That's cool. I, I may be interviewing yeah. you. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Kevin. Oh, God, it was crazy. Look at yeah. you. I, you've, you've told us it's... <laughs> That sounds like a great book, though. Yeah, it is. It is. It is an unbelievable and truly heartbreaking story. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about challenges that a general manager has mm-hmm. that you've alluded to in your, in your book a little bit. Um, would you be so kind as to tell us about how we give star billing to two individuals who are stars in their own right? And I'm talking more specifically about Fortune's Fool. Right. Well, billing is is a very complicated aspect of a contract negotiation and something that 
that means a lot to people. So big stars are normally above the title, and that's a help to the show to sell tickets. Um, there are normally different ways to approach this with, with agents. One of the fairest ways is to say it's alphabetical. Mm. So it's very democratic. It's alphabetical, but people's names will be the same size and the same type of font, but they'll be alphabetical. Another way to say is, you know, this star signed on first way at the beginning, and they earned the right of first billing, but you, big star, who are coming on now, uh, you're going to get second billing, the very next billing. One of the fun stories I tell in the book, because I also I like to tell not just my own personal stories, mm -hmm. but also if there's a piece of theatrical lore, mm -hmm. such as how Making Your Nut yep. came uh, to be called that. Uh, <laughs> I do, and there's a great billing story from, I think, the 30s when... Jimmy Durante and Ethel Merman were both in a Cole Porter musical mm -hmm. called Red, Hot, and Blue, and both their agents demanded that their client get top billing because they were the bigger star. Uh, so what they finally came up with, which was quite brilliant, each actor had his or her name in its own box, but the boxes were placed at diagonals that crisscrossed. So I think it was Ethel Merman's name started at bottom left and rose to top right, and Jimmy Durante started at top left and descended towards bottom right. And maybe they even alternated this in ads. But it was sort of, it sort of equalized them. It was impossible to tell who had top billing. Amazing. So yeah, that's I love an that. extreme. We'll post that picture. I like that. It can take a, a huge part of negotiating, but interestingly, it's one of the aspects that has little or no financial implication. It right? purely, it's purely an ego thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, one thing I did not know about reading the book was this Tony bump, that an actor can get a, uh, a bump in their salary if they win a Tony Award for the show. If, if that's negotiated, if that's negotiated, if negotiated. Up, up front. Wow. Um, but I just want to return quickly oh, yes. to the specific reference you made because I, I oh, want to yes. make sure the readers understand. In Fortune's Fool, we had... Uh, two brilliant actors, Alan Bates and Frank, Frank Langello, Langello, who were both billed over the title alphabetically, so Alan's and Alan Bates's name appeared first to the left, and Frank Langella's immediately to the right. They were the only names over the title. And subsequently, both were nominated for Tony Awards for their brilliant performances. And we realized that if we didn't do anything to try to affect that, there was a good chance they could cancel each other out because they were both initially nominated in the best actor category. Mm -hmm. So we petitioned the Tony committee uh, using the argument that Frank's role was really more of a supporting role than a leading role. And of course, we had to discuss this with Frank's agent and make sure he was online, uh, which they were completely supportive of. But based on this argument that he really was a supporting actor, but due to his stature in the industry, we had given him over the title billing, we wished to petition the committee that he be considered in the supporting category, not the leading actor category, which they agreed to. And subsequently, they were both nominated in their categories for a Tony Award, and they both won. That's amazing. Incredible. Which couldn't have happened. And, and we yeah. should say that traditionally, if the name is above the title, those are what's considered leading actor, yeah. and that if it's under the title, then that's supporting, which doesn't, isn't always the case nowadays. Right. Because you'll get a big, you know, you'll, you'll get a star that sings one song, and you'll still put their name above the title or something. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, Frank really had earned above the title billing. Of course. But, but we could really show, I mean, we could count the number of pages or people exactly. could see the show that his role really was not equal in size. Right. Frank's role wasn't equal in size to Alan's. And so we didn't change the billing in advertising. We just petitioned to have their eligibility in a given category be changed. And to everyone's great joy, 
they both won Tony yeah. Awards. Amazing. Um, the last thing I'd like to ask you is I want to go to the last chapter of your book really quickly, which is called Prime, Decline, Death, and Afterlife, The Four Ages of Theater. Uh, that's my favorite title of a chapter. <laughs> I, I love it. I'm going to repeat it one more time. Prime, Decline, Death, and Afterlife, The Four Ages of Theater. That's great. Uh, would you expand on this a little bit for us, please? Uh, absolutely. Um I was playing off a reference, and, and I actually quote at the top of the chapter Shakespeare's famous Seven Ages of Man speech right. from As You Like It. Uh, and this chapter came about in a very funny way. I, I uh, wrote the first draft of my book. I actually thought I had written my book, but discovered to my chagrin later that, no, what I had written is what people call a first draft. <laughs> um, but I'd never written right. a book, so what did I know? Right. And um, just quick backstory. So I, I showed it to a publisher, uh, my publisher, and he was encouraging. He said, well, it's definitely a first draft. Uh, and I said, well, can we meet? I'd love to write down all your thoughts. Let's go through it chapter by chapter. And we had a big work session, and I went away and incorporated all his notes, and I sent in my second draft, and he said, bravo, you got it. I want to publish it. And I was thrilled. I was thrilled. Okay. But several months later, or sometime later, he came back to me and said, you know, Peter, I was just looking at your book again, and I, I realized it has 13 chapters. Would you, I, I'm just a little superstitious. <laughs> Would you mind, like, coming up with a whole new chapter? And he went, uh, sure. Let me just kind of reread it. Right. And think about something I haven't discussed that I hadn't realized I hadn't discussed yet that I can write a whole chapter about. And in reviewing the book, I realized much of it really was about mounting a show, getting it open. And I thought, all right, there is a lot to discuss about maintaining a show once it opens, when it's in its prime, what you do when a show starts to fail and begins to decline, what you what you have to do to close a show, which is much more complicated than one would realize. So what do you do when death occurs? Mm. And then if your show has been successful and it's been around for a while, this will not be the case if your show is a flash in the pan. Um, But if it's been around for a while, then even after the New York production closes, there are a lot of details that still have to be tended to, and that is the show's afterlife. So that was the inspiration for that... um, unusual sounding chapter. Uh, but it's a fascinating yeah. chapter, and the whole book is absolutely fascinating. So once again, we encourage our listeners to buy it. Broadway general manager demystifying the most important and least understood role in show business, although I feel like I know more about it now oh, after yeah. this conversation, reading the book, by the wonderful Peter Bodio. You can buy it on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, and countless other resources. And let me ask you, is it an electronic form yet, or, or paper? It is, but I, I just need to remind people I cannot sign your Kindle. If you buy a hardcover, <laughs> I will autograph it for you. And also, the, the book has its own website, which cleverly is www.broadwaygeneralmanager, as in the name of the book, mm-hmm. .com. Great. Amazing. And you can read more about it, and there is a tab there which will also take you directly to, I think, Amazon, where you can Excellent. buy a copy. Excellent. Great. Awesome. Peter, thank you so, so much for spending thank so much guys. time with oh, us. Yeah. And uh, pleasure. Fun. we My can't pleasure. wait to read the second book as well. Wow. You're going to be in it, maybe. <laughs> All right. Till next time. Bye, everybody. Good day, Mr. Thomas. Good day, Mr. Schneider. Well, it has happened. We finally hit over 100 iTunes reviews, and we'd like to thank each and every person who took the time to do so. Huzzah! Now, (laughs) we want to climb those charts even faster, and that is where you lovely folks who have not yet rated us come in. The process is very simple. On your podcast app, tap the search tab, enter our name behind the curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, tap the search key, tap our beautiful logo, tap the reviews, tap write a review, then tap your way into our hearts. <laughs> tap your troubles away. away. That's nice, Rob. Once you are there, you can rate us from one star to five stars. Think of one star as Hervé V... <laughs> Rob, how do you say this name? Hervé Villechel. Oh, dear God. I walked right into that one. <laughs> Think of one star as Hervé Villechel and Ima Sumac in Sideshow and five stars as front row seats to the opening night of Gypsy. <laughs> Buddy, kiss me. 
Yeah, they keep me for the first time. I thought that was pretty good. We want to get good reviews, Rob. We want to get good reviews. Excuse me, Arthur Lawrence. Excuse me for trying to liven up our commercial ads a little bit. Eight minute long commercial. I li- it's an infomercial at you this could- point. <laughs> I'm going to be like that lady that sells you the copper pots. Look at this. You can put 400 pounds of manure in it, and it slides right out. Then you can make an omelet. You got another line, Kevin. Got a, got I'm a, waiting for you to say, plus you can leave your comment. Let oh, us know if you like me. Plus neck. you can leave a comment to let us know what you are liking, <laughs> what you're not liking at this point, mm-hmm. or what guests you'd like to hear next. So head on over to iTunes and let us know what you think of our little show. Speaking of little, I'll tell you a story about Charles Lawton later. Thanks, guys. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.